Hi, I'm Lee Tushler, Executive Editor of Design World Magazine, and welcome to our podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be talking about how designers can better design printed circuit boards. I'm speaking with Dave Weens from Metagraphics. He's a business development manager there in charge of printed circuit design. Dave, thanks for joining us. There's a lot of controversy about printed circuit design. I think some of it stems from perhaps a lack of knowledge on the part of design engineers and maybe a few misunderstandings. For example, it's sometimes said that design engineers don't make the best manufacturing engineers, particularly when it comes to PCBs. Can you give us an example of that phenomenon that you've seen when it comes to designing the traces to make a working printed circuit board? Sure. Yeah, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, what engineers are thinking about, I mean, their principal goal is often performance of the end product. And when you focus purely on performance, obviously that has to be considered, but in the absence of other things, then their decisions can lead to lower manufacturability and increased product costs. So, you know, a lack of understanding about board processes, you know, how the thing's actually going to be built can lead to some poor decisions. When you think about the choices that are made in a design process, often quoted statement is that 80% of the product's cost is decided in the first 20% of the design process, which means that engineers really need to be thoughtful up front when they're really starting the process because you know what they put into design can have very long-lasting act on the process. If you look at a couple examples, the most typical one is layer stackers. Designs you know, have upwards of 80 to 90 percent critical you know, high-speed nets on a board, and so the engineer looks at that and says, "Okay, to achieve my performance, I need a stack up exactly like this, which may have very unreasonable tolerances and expensive materials. Either way, that increases manufacturing cost of the product. So that's an opportunity for doing some trade-offs to determine what's really necessary." Another quick one, back drilling every via. Back drilling is a very popular technique to minimize noise on critical signals, and of course you really want to look at that and analyze which signals need to have that done before you deploy yet another stage in the manufacturing process. Another one is choosing devices without looking at potentially less costly alternatives. Look at devices just for performance perspective, you may discount other devices that might serve the purpose and are less costly, particularly if quantities are in volume, you can drop the prices on things. Placing components that require different manufacturing processes. You know, typically an engineer isn't aware of which components need to have a wave, a wave, a reflow, hand solder type approach. They put them all on the same side of the board, you got problems. So that's the kind of stuff that happens. So from a tool side, what we try to do is to manage the constraints, both from a performance and a manufacturing side, so that they help guide the engineer in that decision-making process, as well as having integrated verification tools so they can start flagging problems and fundamentally doing trade-off analyses to understand the difference between performance, cost, yield, and really start making some good judgment calls up front. That's interesting, Dave, but one question I have is nowadays a lot of engineers use tools like PCB layout software to do their board design, but yet problems still show up. Why are there problems despite the fact that you've got things like routing automation working for you? Just to be clear, when we talk about engineers or when I talk about them, 
I distinguish between design engineers who do the logic, the definition, the performance side, and layout designers who do the layout, the physical implementation. And what we're seeing is engineers taking on some additional tasks, like layout, and that's not done across the board. There are still many organizations where the roles are distributed across specialists. But the reason for cross-domain management or cross-domain collaboration is that the challenges of design are getting so great that you need to do a lot of trade-offs, like I mentioned earlier. And sometimes it's easier for one person to do a design and to manage the trade-offs themselves than to work across multiple people. We've actually tried to address both use models in the way we tools are handled. Anytime an individual takes on additional tools, their problems can be introduced. You look at what you have on your desktop and whether it's just simple office automation tools like Microsoft Office, Word, PowerPoint, Excel, you know, they're reasonably integrated, easy to use, consistent across the flow. And then you have other tools, Photoshop, something else. And if you take on a new tool that you don't use every day, then you have to deal with the relearning process every time you take that on. And so it really stretches somebody's core competency. And within the flow, they need automation, they need integration, they need ease of use to guide the way. One other point would be that, you know, again, looking at engineers, uh, historically they've looked at board design as being kind of a menial task. You know, I've just defined what this thing's supposed to do, you just go implement it. And so when they look at board layout, they view it as something that they appreciate being push-button automated. And that just hasn't happened, particularly due to very tightly constrained designs with form factor restrictions that require a lot of manual design and or either manual cleanup of automated tasks or just full-on manual design. So it really, again, push the, puts the focus on flow integration, ease of use to ensure that engineers can get the Dave, a lot of people use tools like PCB routing software. Do you ever run into any specific problems that arise simply because the board was laid out with automated tools? Oh, yeah. This one, <laughs> we could get some layout designers to talk uh, for about a year on this one. And there's a lot of very realistic issues associated with this. Starting off an auto router, if you say, go back to that push button automated router kind of thing that I talked about before, an auto router could route to 98%, which you go, ah, oh, that's awesome, but it doesn't leave any room for the last 2%, so essentially it's useful. Another one is the results don't have the same quality as manual routing. And aside from the aesthetics of it, which functionally don't really matter, this is an issue if the remaining routes can't be stitched in. In other words, somebody that's looking at it from perhaps a more manual perspective can look at where else additional routes need to go in and save room for them, make the design cleaner. An automatic tool may not do that. Some routers don't consider all electrical and manufacturing constraints. So you have to go back in and say, consider some of the electrical rules. Well, you've got to do tweaks at the end to add additional net length, things like that, to manage the electrical rules. Same thing for manufacturing constraints. If the router didn't consider that, that means rework. Another example on the performance side is TrueArc. Engineers are looking at very high speed, upwards of 28 gigabit, and there you need to start looking at things like TrueArc traces. And again, if your router doesn't handle that, that means after the process. Routers fundamentally can't visualize a design and the optimal paths the same way as a human can. I think we've taken a lot of strides forward, but fundamentally we see it as the you know, best case for design is something that marries the control and intellect of a designer with 
the automation of the tools. And we just recently introduced a sketch routing technology that does that and really results in very fast routes, very high quality routes, but it was done at the direction of the designer. So the designer is in there modifying things and then saying, okay, now you do your job, you know, automatic tools, which is much different than just pushing a button and saying, please place around the hole. Dave, a lot of engineers are concerned about tolerances, but I know in, in PCB design, it's possible to get an overly tight tolerance. Do you run into problems with boards that have been over-specified that way? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And again, it's a trade-off between performance and manufacturability in most cases. A layer stack-up can be built with very, very tight tolerances for differential pairs, for impedances. And if it's too tight, then it could be impossible to build. It could limit the manufacturers, and it could increase the cost overall, either because of the manufacturer or because of the materials involved. So that's one example. Trace matching is another one where you could make them too tight to effectively route the design. So the constraints up front limit the back-end processing. You know, same thing goes from a manufacturability perspective. If the tolerances are too tight on manufacturing, then you can result in much lower yield if you don't design for them. Things like registration errors, or it's going to have some movement, material movement, and you don't take that into account for things like solder masks or the drills of annual ring papillas, then you're going to get low yield. Is there a ballpark tolerance range that designers should factor in when they're doing a board? No, the easy answer is no. Only because there's different tolerances depending on different geometries on the board, different materials, different manufacturers. All of those create variables that you have to take into consideration, which really means the more you can do to bring the manufacturing constraints and manufacturing understanding into the design process and validate that before you send the manufacturing, the better off. Well, Dave, when it comes to designing PCBs, do you see any best practice disciplines that design teams use that can do this right? Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about worst practice because, again, it's easier to look at those. But, uh, you know, some of the best practice things, and we've worked with Aberdeen to do some research and understand from a wide range of companies what best practice means to them and how, you know, what disciplines they've adopted to achieve it. And just a few off the top, vision collaboration across disciplines. There are a lot of different factors, a lot of different trade-offs that we've talked about, things like electromechanical, FPGA, PCB, Design to manufacturing, and all of these can either be done by one person or they require collaboration across multiple disciplines. So facilitating that collaboration is one. Another is instituting virtual prototyping during the design process. Talked some about this as well. Instead of doing multiple costly, time-consuming physical prototype cycles, instead you institute a virtual prototyping process or stage during the design process to validate the design, fix any errors before you go to, to physical prototyping, it's going to be you know, a lot quicker, a lot faster, a lot uh, cheaper. And lastly, deploying a, a lean NPI design process, something that a lot of organizations are doing. This involves integrating DFM validation within the design process. That's kind of like that virtual prototyping thing. But it also involves a clean handoff of manufacturing data to the manufacturing organization. A lot of design teams are stuck in very traditional processes 
with Gerber drill files, everything else, and that process takes a lot longer for the manufacturing side to build up and validate and could require lots of interaction with the design team, so it's very inefficient. So a lean process is something that strong organizations. Today we're getting near the end of our time here, but are there any trends that you see in PCB manufacturing and fabrication that you think designers ought to at least be aware of? Sure. PCB fab is a relatively slow-moving industry. There's not radical changes from day-to-day, year-to-year. What we do see is evolution and increased adoption of technologies that have been around for a while. For instance, HDI, high-density interconnect microvias, we're seeing upwards of 40 to 50% of high-end designs adopting this for space reasons and performance reasons. Another one is increasing use of rigid flex, including for high-speed signals, which requires appropriate shielding over the flex areas. Also seeing increased use of embedded actives, and basically bare dye buried within the substrate, and passives as well. So that's an advanced fab kind of approach. So every one of those are technologies that have been around for a while and are gaining additional hold based primarily on space and performance. Okay. With that, our time is up today. Dave, thanks for speaking with us, and thanks to our listeners for listening in, and I hope to see you all the next time. Have a good day.